0: I believe becoming the happiest, most alive version of ourselves is the most important and inspiring thing we can do for our children. Hi everyone, welcome to this week's episode. I hope you're all really well this week. Before I introduce the guest and we get into this week's episode, I just want to tell you about something really exciting I've been working on. So I was reflecting Recently, about how hard this time has been for us parents. And what I keep hearing day in, day out from our community is just the challenges on all fronts of what's happened in our world, collectively and individually. And I knew that I wanted to do something to support everyone, to support you and to support myself as well. So I've actually commissioned a national study, as you do, of 2000 parents because I really wanted to find out. What was it that parents need support with the most right now? And what came back was so fascinating. So 87% of parents told me that they felt really stressed with family life right now, which is, to me, totally unsurprising, given what we are all grappling with. 85% of those parents told me they felt really worried about their children's emotional health, which again you know, unfortunately, is not surprising given that our children's worlds have pretty much been turned upside down almost overnight. It's not surprising that we would be concerned about how they are able to handle all the changes that are happening. And 83% of those parents told me they wanted to make changes to their life post lockdown. So I kind of looked at that data and thought about how can I best help. So drum roll I have created a virtual five module workshop it's called the family reset plan and its mission is to help with each one of those areas so our own stress with family life helping our children's emotional health and also helping us to reflect on this time and what it might mean for our families going forward but I also knew that I couldn't do it alone that those challenges are far bigger than me and my skill set to be honest with you so I've brought in two of the best psychologists that I know one of them is actually a really close friend of mine from university her name is Dr Neka Ikkyogu and she is the most fantastic child and educational psychologist she's like who I call almost every day (laughs) with my parenting challenges she is incredible she's going to be teaching a module on how to help our children of all ages you know from tiny, tiny, tiny babies all the way up to 18, how to help them with fears, worries, big feelings, disappointments, which we might have to handle if we do go back into another lockdown, and also transitions. You know, however excited our children are about going back to school or going back into whatever normal life might look like, it's still a big transition for them. So NECA teaches some fantastic tools and ideas for how we can support our children And then I've also brought in Dr. Emma Svanberg, who you probably all know, she's been on the podcast, she's known as the Mammologist on Instagram, and she is teaching a module on family stress and parental stress, and how it shows up for us and what we can do about it so that we can contain our own feelings and support our children's. I'm really proud of it. I've been working hard. I'm not going to lie to you. You know, there's been some late nights and some early mornings, but I am incredibly proud of what the three of us have created. And the thing that I'm also really proud of is, is that it's quite affordable. So it's only £25, which I know to some is a lot of money. And we do have paces available for people who have struggling financially as a result of coronavirus. And it's also going to be free to anyone working in the NHS. So it is going to be out next week 28th of July if you join the mailing list I'll pin you a note to let you know that it's gone live and you can have a look at it and also I'll be talking about it loads on Instagram but I just wanted to mention it here because I know many of you listen that aren't on social media so it will be going live next week on the 28th of July it's called the family reset plan it's a two-hour virtual workshop and it costs 25 pounds and I am so excited to Hear what you all think about it and get it out there. Anyway, that's enough of me promoting myself, eh? So on to this week's episode. Dr. Sarah Fora is a mum of one. She's a consultant psychiatrist and she's got over 10 years experience working with the NHS. You might have read her monthly column in Women's Health magazine and she does loads of work with Stella. So if you read that on a Sunday, you might recognize her and know her. She's also got a new book out called The Mind Medic. That's what she's known as on Instagram. In this episode, she shares some of her best tools from the book. We also discuss parenting, and you know me, I turn it into a bit of a therapy session discussing some of her childhood experiences and how it is impacting her today. Well, this intro is already far too long, so thanks for sticking with me. Here is the main episode. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome, Sarah, to the podcast. I'm so excited to be chatting to you this morning. Thank you so much for having me. I know
1: we've been trying to set this up for a while, so it's great that we finally managed to get something in the diary.
0: Well, we've got a lot in common. I know your little girl's five, mine's nearly five. And I was wondering, it might be interesting to start the conversation this morning around lockdown and the easing of lockdown. And I'd love to hear how you're feeling about it, you know, what your experience of this time has been. And then maybe could you share some of your tools, particularly around worry, because I'm hearing there's a lot of worry and anxiety and concern out there with parents. So maybe that would be a really good place to start.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as a professional, so I've continued to work throughout of lockdown, but my clinics have looked very different. So generally, I'm used to going into seeing people in clinic, in A&E, in their homes. But at the start of lockdown, we had to kind of look over how we did that. And a lot of the time, we were offering telephone consultations. But That's only really helpful if you know the families really, really well or you know the people really well that you're seeing. So for the new patients, which we know actually anxiety is rife at the moment, Mm -hmm. I'd have to see them for the PPE. And that's getting used to a different way of working because a lot of what I do relies heavily on the things that people are saying to me body language you know someone could say to you they're absolutely fine over the phone but if you have them in clinic then it's a completely different story they may be jittery they may be looking down on the floor and all of that is so important to capture when you're trying to work out what's going on for someone so my work's kind of carried on but in a different guise and my daughter's carried on accessing school but it's a different environment for us so she only started reception in september and then returning to school and wondering where all her friends are because obviously oh, it's so it's yeah. so difficult and then kind of having to reassure her that she hasn't done anything wrong that they're going to come back but then for her it's that uncertainty of when are they going to come back so that's been really challenging to have those conversations and to provide reassurance for her I mean there's parts of the lockdown that actually I've really enjoyed you know I've enjoyed being forced to stop and just my pace is just so much slower. There's definitely aspects of lockdown that I want to carry through as becoming out the other side. But there's certainly things that I think it's going to change a lot for people because what I'm hearing is that, you know, pre-lockdown, there's lots of people that would have said, I don't struggle with anxiety. I don't struggle with my mood. And then suddenly, because they're forced to just sit with their own thoughts, with their own feelings, they're suddenly starting to experience those emotions for the first time. And that can be really, really unsettling. I think also, while social media has been great during this period of bringing people together, it also means that comparison can be really rife. As a parent, you know, one child has been homeschooled better than another, or someone's out of bed, has, has done a workout, they're eating really well, and I'm still in my pajamas without a scrap of makeup on. And those comparisons really can compound feelings of low mood, feelings of anxiety. So I think everyone's experience of lockdown has been different. Obviously, the other thing we haven't even touched upon is that people have lost jobs during this time, people have grieved during this time and not been able to see family members. And actually that's
0: gonna hugely impact people as well. It's been incredibly challenging, I think. You know, for everyone, but I think for parents, you know, having our childcare, you know, you were lucky in a way, you know, that as your key worker status, you know, enabled you to continue working. But I think for a lot of people, you know, suddenly losing childcare having to still work with no childcare. And as you say, the kind of added pressures of, you know, health anxiety, worrying about our own health, our children's health, not being able to see friends and family. In a way, we've kind of lost a lot of the really core needs, haven't we? You know, connection and security and in some way predictability around life. It's all been ripped from us. And so I'm wondering, you know, and as you so wisely said, you know, I think... I know I, for years, you know, ran away from my feelings. My coping tool for anxiety was to keep busy for years and years and years, you know, in my early 20s. So I'm wondering what are some of the tools that you think that could really help people right now in that kind of perfect storm of really challenging circumstances? First and foremost,
1: it's really important to acknowledge that worry in particular is a normal emotion. It's a normal response to uncertainty. But what I really want people to take away is the fact that they can be in control of when and where they worry. So one of the tools that I talk about within the book and that I use in practice is something called the worry dump. And essentially, it's about thinking about your worries. So as worries crop into your mind during the day, I want you to ask yourself a question. Is this a problem solving worry? So is this a worry that I can turn into a problem that I can solve? So one of the examples that I could use during this period is that someone wanted to go into town to meet a friend, but they're worried about catching a bus and what's going to be different, whether they'll get the bus. Now, that's a worry that you could easily run away with. But actually, you can turn that into a problem that you could solve, which is checking the bus company's social media notifications, checking their website, ringing up just to clarify what you do or don't need to do. A might not worry is something along the lines of, I'm worried that I haven't seen this friend in so long. What happens if we have nothing to talk about? What happens if they thought actually this friendship isn't for me anymore? And again, that's something that might not even happen, but you can almost allow it to run away with you. That particular worry is not something that you can readily turn into a problem that you can solve. So with those sorts of worries, I would always say to shelve them until later in the day. So for me, I always have a worry curfew once I've put my little girl to bed, 7.30 till eight, where I review the list of might not worries that crop up during my day. So the worry of meeting up with a friend, them thinking I'm boring, them not want to be friends with me anymore, rather than allow it to consume that moment and to run away with me, I say to myself, right, I'm going to come back to that at 7.30. And then I return to whatever activity that I was doing before or distract myself with something positive. And then just repeat the process. So as worries, enter your mind during the course of the day. Ask yourself, is this a worry that I can turn into a problem that I can solve? If so, solve the problem there and then. If not, then write it down. So using the notes section on your phone, or I prefer jossing it on a piece of paper because when I come to my worry curfew and review my list of worries, once my worry curfew is over, I scrunch up the piece of paper and chuck it in the bin. And for me, that's really cathartic. So the idea being that when you come to your worry curfew, you look at your list of worries that you've generated and think what would have continuing to have worried during the day have gotten the way off? So it could have got in the way if you've been enjoying time with a friend. It could have meant that you were running late for work. It could have meant that you struggled to get a good night's sleep. Ask yourself what continuing to have worried during that moment in time avoided by postponing it. And then just repeat the process the following day. And what it will get you used to is being really skilled at acknowledging worry, but knowing when and where it will serve you and feeling really empowered to know that actually you're in control of when you can worry about it.
0: Yeah. And that was the word that was coming to me actually was empowered. And I do something similar, a slightly different language. I do two columns. Am I in control of this or is it totally outside my control? I.e. other people's opinions, you know, the government, the rules, the school. And like you, you know, I find it so helpful. And I talk to my clients about it too, you know, just writing it down because I think it's so often that these kind of things swim about in our head, isn't it? And then they just get bigger out of proportion you know, as you say, can kind of really take over. One thing I wanted to ask you was this idea of, you know, it sounds like an internal boundary, doesn't it? Having this curfew. How does someone, if they decide, right, I'm not going to worry about that right now. I'm going to write it down. What does someone do if it just keeps popping back up? You know, you might be making the supper for the kids, you know, it's kind of popping back up like that kind of intrusive knock at the door. Have you got a tool for what someone could do to just keep coming back to the moment? because we're creatures of habit, I
1: would basically say to repeat that process because the more you get used to repeating that process of acknowledging the worry but saying it's not going to serve me to worry about it at this moment in time, then actually, you know, after a few days, weeks of, continuing to put that into practice you will get very skilled at being able to shelve that worry because you know it's not realistic for me to turn around and say oh don't worry about it because actually we know that that's not going to be the most helpful piece of advice and as a worrier myself i know that actually that's the worst thing that you could possibly say to me but it's about just repeating that process and strengthening this idea that worries that don't serve me in the immediate are things that i need to shelve for later
0: you know you mentioned you're a kind of worrier i'm wondering I guess after a while of doing this practice, do you see in yourself and maybe with your clients, is it helpful to start to look at common themes of what you might be worrying about? So I know a big one for me and a lot of people is, you know, what other people think. And then could you use that then as a kind of jump off point to begin some deeper healing around that worry? Or do you think it's just kind of always just managing that surface level worry? I think
1: it's, again, trying to establish where worry is getting in the way of your everyday. So for the people that I see in clinic, often it's not a case of them just worrying and being able to postpone it till later. It might be that the worry is just all consuming. It affects every aspect of their life, in which case it would be that they would need to see someone like myself. So I think worry is always there. And I would say that actually there's kind of a spectrum of worry. And if I reflect on worry for me personally, I think worry has probably ramped up a notch since I had my daughter, mm. because it opened up this whole. I mean, you mentioned kind of comparison. But it just opened up this huge avenue of comparison that I'd not ever thought about before. That actually, you could be stood at the school gates, and naturally, comparisons would go from there. Or the sort of the dreaded WhatsApp groups, and you know, all those sorts of things can set up
0: doubt in your mind, which can fuel worry as well. What do you do when you notice going that that kind of comparison spiral? Much in the same way that
1: you did in terms of kind of the lists and thinking about how is comparing myself to this individual going to serve me? So particularly if I'm thinking about online comparisons, it's looking at your feed and thinking, have you curated a feed that is synonymous with real life? So actually, if you're following very similar accounts with very similar opinions that don't necessarily match up with your own, it's quite easy to be drawn into this idea that you're doing something wrong, that you should be bettering yourself or you should be doing something that someone else is doing. I always ask if it 's not going to be positive for you, inspiring, motivational, or educational, why do you continue to follow those accounts and fuel those social comparisons? Because I think for all that social media does get a bad rap, actually it is a really great space for connection, and I know that during the lowly night feeds, actually that was so important to me to have those connections with other people that were doing exactly the same thing that I was doing in the depths of the night. What I would ask people to do is if they find that they are constantly setting up comparisons online, it's about curating your feed, muting if the unfollow feels too bold a move to make, and to ask yourself, actually, what are you achieving by following this individual? So that's the best bit of advice that I would give. And similarly, one of the chapters that I talk in, maybe controversially within the book, is looking a bit closer to home. So looking at family relationships friendships, because actually all too often we can hold on to friendships for nostalgic reasons. Oh, I've been friends with them since school. Therefore, you know, we have to be friends for life. But all too often I was seeing that people were passing off excuses for negative people in their life, people that would make them doubt themselves, people that wouldn't be their cheerleader in the corner and passing it off as kind of personality quirks. And oh, that's just so-and-so when actually it was having a really detrimental effect to how they were feeling. So within the book, one of the things that I really ask people to consider is really holding those friendships and relationships to scrutiny in much the same way that you would do with your online friendships or influences that you follow, doing the same a little closer
0: to home. I love it. Do you call it the friend litmus test, isn't it? Yes. I think it's so powerful, this. And it's something that a lot of my clients, I don't know if you have the same, really struggle with, actually, particularly in motherhood and suddenly, I don't know about you, but there was a kind of whole new friendship worlds opening up to me, you know, through groups and, you know, nursery. And I think it's so easy to get kind of just stuck in these relationships, whether they're, you know, as you say, based on history or new, that just kind of drain energy rather than make you feel good when you walk away and I think energy is so finite isn't it for us mothers I think it's such an important area to look at can you share the tool in a bit more detail so people you know it is in the book but it's such a powerful one there's obviously a section within there which I call ask
1: yourself which is basically a list of questions that you ask alongside any of the friendships and relationships of the people in your life So sort of in brief, really, what it's asking you to consider is how you feel when you're with this person, how you feel when you're not with them, how you feel when you receive a message or a missed phone call from them. So it basically doesn't necessarily just take a snapshot. It looks at your friendship and relationship overall. For instance, it might be that someone's going through a really difficult patch, maybe a friend's lost a job, or maybe they've gone through a breakup, and in which case, they are needing a lot more of your support, a lot more reassurance. And whilst it's really important that you are there and are supportive, you can't deny that that will have an impact on you, whether it does feel it's quite draining or consuming. What I want people to consider is, is that just a snapshot of actually a really positive, a really nurturing relationship? Because what I don't want people to take away from this is that all friendships have to be free from any blemishes, any flaws. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is, if it's a common theme that whenever you're with this person, you feel drained, you feel negative, you doubt yourself, or they're overly critical, actually it's forcing you to evaluate what am I actually gaining
0: from this friendship or relationship? I guess that's kind of not the easy bit because it takes a bit of self awareness and maybe a little bit of time to think about it. But it's easier to do that, isn't it, than to actually then set the boundary and exit the friendship. I've had to do it a couple of times and I find it excruciatingly challenging. Have you actually done this in terms of, you know, stepping away from a friendship and how does someone actually do that with kind of grace, but also clarity, that boundary? I think it all boils down to communication,
1: communicating how a situation or how that friendship has made you feel and giving that person opportunity to speak, to speak from their point of view. It might be something that they were aware of. Actually, what you don't want to do is make assumptions that this person is just doing X, Y, and Z just to alienate you. I think what's really important is actually having an adult conversation, sitting down and expressing how you feel. I mean, one of the case studies I talk about that was the thing that was very much the issue was that this person did sit down with their friend, expressed how they were feeling. And the friend didn't want to take that. They didn't want to register that. And at that point, they had to make the difficult decision to walk away. So I think first and foremost, it's about communicating and being really clear about, is it just a situation or is it a theme that you've noticed in the last few months or last year? And Does the other person want to make steps to rectify that as well? Because it might be that they may be mortified and think, I'm so sorry I didn't realise I was doing that. Can I make it up to you? Or what do I need to do differently? And working collaboratively to decide what would or wouldn't help, rather than it just having to be a clean break. I think it's important to allow that conversation to take
0: place. What I love about this as well is kind of, and it links actually to your worry tool, because I think once we can get clear on... Those kind of little things that might niggle at us and having the courage. And I think it does take courage to say to that friend, you know, when you were late, actually, it really made me feel like you weren't respecting my time or whatever it may be. And this is something that I'm learning to do far more effectively than I have in the past, which is the little things so that they don't build up and build up and build up. And suddenly, you know, this is something that I used to do, you know, create a big story around it. And then I would just cut someone off, which is so unhealthy as Mm -hmm. opposed to, maintaining I guess that honesty in a friendship so that it's not this kind of big sit down conversation it might be kind of a continuous dialogue.
1: Absolutely and just using an example closer to home for instance during the lockdown period my husband's had to pull his weight a little bit more because usually we'd rely on his mum for childcare, but because she's in the vulnerable category, we're not able to do that. And so I could allow sort of resentment to build up that I was always doing the drop-offs and the pickups, and just kind of give off my aura, which I have been known to do. (laughs) Actually, actually what I did differently was I actually communicated with him. I said, look, this is what I need your help with. This is what I need you to do. It's not going to be good enough that you're not going to be able to help on this day when I know for a fact that you could help. And actually working through it that way, rather than allow this anger and resentment to build up and then explode in another way.
0: Yeah, it's such a good self-care tool, isn't it? You know, all your book is kind of about these amazing tools. And I think that clear communication is so important. I had Eve Rodsky on the podcast at the start of lockdown who wrote a book called Fair Play, which is brilliant if you've not come across it. And she talks about having this kind of 10-minute meeting, essentially, at the end of every day where you review all those resentments and those little niggles. Oh, I love that. Um, It's so so good. We've been doing it. But the real magic of it is that you don't share the niggles through the day. So you kind of store them up. It's really similar to your worry tool. again. Yeah. store them up. So you're not kind of snapping at each other through the day. And then at the end of the day, you might kind of talk through them. It's just such a easier way to live, isn't it? Through this really intense time. Absolutely. Another thing that I kind of love, you know, we're dotting around the book, you know, that it's based around the five senses. One that I love in the here section is around saying no, because it's something that I see myself struggling with and my clients. And I wondered if you could share a bit about... What you've learned about saying no and and your kind of best tools for how people can start to get those firmer boundaries in their lives? I think first and foremost,
1: it's really important to be able to say no, because I think all too often we can be pressured to say yes when we really mean no, because we don't want to be seen as being selfish or disinterested or not very helpful. I know those are things that I worry that I'll be perceived as if I say no to things. But the problem with saying yes, when you mean no, is that it can mean that you take on more than you're able to. You can risk burnout. And it might be that you end up breeding quite a lot of resentment to the person that got you to say yes in the first place. So one of the tools that I talk about within the book is something called the importance list to try and get you more confident in being able to say no. So this idea that you need to think about what's important to you personally, What's important to you from a social perspective in terms of your family, friendships, and relationships? And what's important to you from a work-life perspective? So one of the examples I give is I... I have this idea that, I mean, imagine going on holiday at the moment. Obviously, it feels like a distant thought, but I want you to imagine that we've decided that we're going to go to Ibiza for a beach holiday. And we've decided to go back home, pack up our suitcases, sun cream, bikinis, beachwear, everything that we need. And we're going to meet at the airport. So we go to the airport and we've checked in our bags and we're on our way to the departure gate and someone stops us in our tracks and says, you don't want to be going to Ibiza. You want to be going skiing here instead. So what would you say in that situation? Oh, I love Ibiza. I hate skiing. It'd be really easy. (laughs) (laughs) I'd be like, no, No, there's (laughs) no So So you, you, you say no. So I want to give you another scenario, which is this time, we're not really sure where we want to go on holiday. We're that desperate to get on a flight somewhere that we think, let's just go back home. Let's pack for every eventuality and we'll meet at the departures board at the airport and we'll decide there and then where we'll go. And the same person approaches us and says, do you want to come skiing here? This is the only place that you need to go. We're more likely to entertain that idea. Yeah. So what's the difference between those two scenarios? The difference is that in the first scenario, we were very clear about our goals that we wanted to go on holiday, somewhere sunny, with a beach preferably. We booked the hotel. We decided who was coming with us and everything was set. We were ready to go. So we're quite clear on our purpose and what was important to us. Whereas in the second scenario, we've come unprepared. We don't really know what we want to do or what we want to get out of the holiday. Therefore, it's a lot easier to be swayed by an opportunity that presents itself. So what I ask people to do within the book is to think in much the same way with the holiday in terms of what's important to you. Think about what's important in every aspect of your life so that when opportunities are presented to you, you can have the confidence to think, okay, is this going to serve me in the long run? Is this going to serve what's important to me? And if the answer is no, at the very least, you can say, I'll think about it. But it just gives you that extra confidence to think, well, this isn't important to me at the moment. This isn't important to me from a work point of view. Now, saying that, there might be situations where actually you really want to say no, but it's important that you say yes. For instance, you might have a wedding coming up and you don't really want to do an extra shift at work. But actually, you have to say yes, because, you know, in the long run, you've got a wedding that you want to pay off therefore saying yes is actually going to serve what's important to you. So I have lots of kind of reflective tools within the book to get you more confident to think about what's important to
0: you and hopefully in the long run to feel more confident about saying no. I love that tool it's really similar, actually. It's so interesting because we come at this, you know, I'm a coach and you're a psychiatrist. We're coming at this from quite different backgrounds, but actually a lot of the tools are really similar, which is just so powerful, isn't it? To, to kind of know, because I talk about values, you know, as a coach, I'm kind of obsessed with values and it's the same thing, you know, what are your values? And I love that example because so many clients will say to me, you know, I want to spend more quality time with the family. That's really important value of mine. And yet they might find it really difficult to say no to an invitation for a play date on a Sunday afternoon when they kind of agreed already that actually that was going to be protected family time. So I think, as you say, like in that example, just getting clear on what are your values, what are important to you makes it so much easier Absolutely. to navigate because, you know, I don't know about you, but the world can get so noisy and there are so many requests on us constantly. I had one recently. I was quite proud of myself for this one, which was around Jessie's nursery. And they kind of said that this was before lockdown, that they were going to introduce homework. And she's oh, wow. four <laughs> and only a bit of reading, you know, but I, okay. <laughs> not algebra. But, you know, one of my values and it's really important to me is around time at home is about kind of connection. And, you know, I have quite strong views on the parity for me of kind of academia and also emotional support and so basically I said no and it felt really kind of empowering I just said listen at this age like it doesn't align to our values so good for you we won't be doing it and all the other parents I think to my knowledge we're the only ones. And Jessie's asked me about it a few times, like, why does everyone have this yellow book, which is the homework book, oh. that she doesn't have? <laughs> and I'm kind of is such a good opportunity to explain to her, like, why she doesn't, what's important to us as a family, you know, why we've made that decision differently. And often it can mean going against the grain. Absolutely. Yeah. But the thing is, she's got plenty of opportunity to do all that stuff when she starts school. Exactly. That was my view. You know, let's see. But I think once you, as you're describing, like once you're clear on your values, it makes decisions and, you know, you can then live by them. And I think that's such an important thing for family life, isn't it? Is that you can actually live by your values and what's important to you as you share. Absolutely. What's important to you as a, you know, professionally, personally, in your family, and how do you kind of live by that importance list? That's such a good question. I never thought that that would turn
1: back on me, you know, Zoe. (laughs) You pulled me out. Personally, I think, especially during this lockdown period, all the consumer stuff, it's gone really down in terms of my priority list. Actually, the stuff that I thought was important, as much as I enjoy those things, going into town, shopping, actually, for me, haven't been the most important thing during this lockdown period. Actually, what I really relish is just having time with my daughter and my husband and just cutting out the outside noise. That, for me, is a real rarity because both me and my husband work full time and my daughter's at school. So family time for us is a real Treat and normally we'd go away and kind of escape the UK but actually what's been nice is that we've not been able to go anywhere so just enjoying the house and enjoying spending time with one another and just doing like simple things like just going for a walk and really enjoying that so that for me is really important I always put exercise into sort of things that are important to me personally not from an aesthetic point of view but just for what it does for me mentally so I've exercised since I was at uni and for me, it's just really helpful in lifting my mood, setting me up for the day, improving my energy levels, my sleep. And actually that is a period of time during the day that's just for me. And you can almost feel as a mum that you shouldn't have any time for yourself, whereas actually I think it's so key to have that time. So whatever the time for yourself looks like, whether it's you know having a bath lasting on a night or catching up on a box set or doing your nails, actually having that space free from any responsibility, I think so important. And I think exercise serves that for me. And then work-wise, I think I was turning into someone that was just a yes person. Again, coming back to this idea that I just felt by saying no, I was being unhelpful or you know being selfish. But actually, I got more confident in saying no to things Over the last few weeks, that don't serve me or that are gonna eat away into family time, time with my husband, time with my daughter. And that's felt really, really empowering. And when I mentioned earlier that there's parts of lockdown life I'd like to continue with, I think that's definitely something that I hope will stick, which is kind of not feeling selfish for just wanting time out with my family and doing things that are important to me. Where does that come
0: from, do you think? That kind of fear that we have that if we say no, we're going to somehow be seen as selfish, or I guess it's that fear of not being liked, isn't it? Where does that come from? What's the root cause that we could pluck out? This is turning into a therapy sessions, Zoe. I didn't expect this.
1: <laughs> I love it though. But it's just, are you talking from me personally or in general? Whichever you feel comfortable chatting about. Oh, no, I'll take personally. Actually, I think at school. I had an amazing time at primary school, but come secondary, because I was from a family that didn't drink, that we lived a bit further away from the school. So naturally I wasn't able to kind of go to after-school stuff. I had to say no, but it was more geography and my family values that meant that I had to say no to social gatherings with friends or spending time hanging around parks or, you know, doing the stuff that kids do. So I think I've... Maybe overcompensated for that as I've grown older because of the negative responses I would have. If you're saying no as a child to going out on a weekend, first thing Monday morning, you go into your sixth form common room and everyone's talking about what they did at the weekend. And instantly that sets up a divide. And that was just basically strengthened throughout my whole time at school. So I would just kind of knuckle down and just get on with my work. So any opportunities that came from sort of an academic point of view, I'd say yes to because I thought it would mean that it wouldn't be odd for me to say no to that the social stuff. And I think that's just really carried through because I always have a lot of guilt with my daughter about social gatherings, making sure that she goes to every party because you don't want them to be left out and you kind of want to avoid past patterns repeating themselves in your children I think that's just natural as a parent to worry about that stuff I remember her second week at school and I asked her whether or not she had a good day she said oh yeah it was all right but I paid by myself and honestly my heart just sank I was like oh my god what do you mean you paid by yourself <laughs> again it's this idea of kind of By saying no to stuff or not being a part of something, then it sets you apart as different or not quite fitting in. There's definitely probably some deep-rooted issues around friendships and what it means to work. And I think that's probably where I get my strong work ethic from. But I think on the other side that having a strong work ethic means that you're not necessarily aware of boundaries or when you should or shouldn't be saying no to things.
0: I know for me, that kind of work ethic was so driven by a feeling of needing validation and not feeling enough. And, you know, I really relate to the school thing as well. You know, I had quite a tricky time through secondary school. And I think, you know, I'm so grateful that I've been able to unpick a lot of it. And what I'm really hearing from you is, you know, and in the book, you know, is kind of the power of asking ourselves these questions. You know, why am I like that? What experiences made me think this way? How could I change that? And I think that's what this podcast is about, really, is giving people these kind of really simple, yet really profound and life-changing tools and ideas to just challenge the way that we are. You know, as you say, to live a kind of calmer, happier, more joyful, more connected life. And I don't know about you, but for me, it's a kind of never-ending journey, (laughs) especially with children. I find Jessie constantly triggers stuff in me. And I had the same to you, actually, where she said... She likes playing on her own a lot. So I've had to be really careful not to project my fear onto her, actually, because she is an introvert currently, you know, that might change, but currently she's quite introverted. So I have to be careful not to kind of shame her around that, you know, why are you on your own? And now I say, say, well, that's amazing. Like, it's so fun to play on your own. I say a lot of the great ideas in the world came from people who were experimenting on their own. So it's just so multi-layered and faceted and deep and messy, isn't it? All this stuff.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, similarly, when I asked my daughter, oh, so what did you do on your own? Just the enthusiasm just oozes from her. And I just think, well, actually, to be that age and to be just perfectly content playing on your own, I just hope that that continues for her as she gets older.
0: Yeah. I was saying this the other day, but Jessie said (laughs) she was on a play date and the friend's dad came in and she just said, I don't like him. Like out loud. And I was so embarrassed. But then I was kind of talking it through with my husband. And I was like, imagine having, she hasn't got that filter yet. Yeah. And in a way, I just find it so fascinating <laughs> to watch, like how much easier, in some ways, my life would be if I was able to just be like, "Do you know what? I'm really sorry. We're not connecting. I'm leaving the meeting." You know? Yes. Like, oh my god! It's <laughs> amazing. So <laughs> like, I think there's so much to be said for like them in their kind of pure essence of absolutely. They haven't got the kind of beliefs or restrictions about how it should be yet, right? Oh, such a great story. I mean, I could chat to you all day about this stuff. So I always Always ask the same question at the end of every episode which is if you could give just one gift to all the mothers and parents in the world what would that one gift be and why? I would just basically
1: give them a mirror to say actually you're doing a fantastic job because I think all too often doubt can creep in mm-hmm. and doubt can get in the way of us enjoying the moment enjoying time with the family and you know we know that often that doubt can set off guilt of what we should or shouldn't be doing. Particularly, you know, mums that are at work, there's this kind of wrestle of, should I be at home or You know, I'm working too much. I'm missing out on time with my daughter or my son. So I would just say, just a mirror to say, actually, whatever you're doing, you know, as long as they're clothed, fed, happy, you're doing an awesome job
0: yeah don't we need to hear that right now my gosh after the challenging you know three months we've all been through thank you so much it's been such a joy to chat to you and hopefully when this is all over we might be able to do something face to face oh i hope so that'd be lovely so that's it thank you for listening to the episode i hope you really enjoyed it and if you did please do leave a review on itunes it does make a massive difference to the number of mums that we can reach with this content. I'd be very grateful. And also, if you want to send me any comments or thoughts about the episode, then please pop over onto Instagram at motherkind underscore Zoe. And also, just to let you know about my coaching. So I do work one-on-one with mums on my programme, which is a three-month programme called Reconnect To You. So if you want to work with me on taking your power back in any area of your life, then please do get in touch. Just drop me an email, zoe at motherkind.co or look on the website, www.motherkind.co. That's it. And I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. Take care.